Well, this is News Talks on the Record. Andrea Gilligan in for Kieran Cudahy today. Now it's time for Hidden Histories. And they won. What happens? They won. North Korea have beaten Italy. What is going on here? They are delighted. This is fantastic. And North Korea will be in the quarterfinals. And the crowd rising to them. Donald Fallon, good afternoon. Good to be here, how are you? <laughs> good, not too bad at all. Um, so, football, after all the, the singing <laughs> and the sing-songs all week, it isn't coming home. 1966 still remains England's only World Cup victory and uh, I suppose while much was kind of said this week about the 1966 side historians will remember that uh, the World Cup for a very different reason of course which was the remarkable performance of North Korea but 1966 remains the most intriguing World Cup in history It does yeah and it was a very odd World Cup it was a very curious World Cup even before it happened I mean there was a, there was an awful lot of press interest in that tournament for different reasons primarily I mean the Jules Rimet trophy uh, went missing months before the tournament later to be discovered wrapped in newspaper at the bottom of, sub- of a suburban garden hedge, uh, thankfully more or less in- intact. Uh, it was also a tournament that we were very unlucky not to get into. Ireland very narrowly missed out. Uh, we lost the playoff in in, in Paris, 1-0 to Spain. Uh, and Eamon Dunphy, who played that night, he said that the, the FAI, the Football Association of Ireland, sold us out really. The match was due to be played in Highbury in London. The Spaniards wanted to play it in Paris because in the era of Franco, there was a lot of Spanish exiles in Paris. Imagine if we played our playoff game for the 1966 World Cup in London, where we should have played it, a city with an absolutely enormous Irish diaspora in the 1960s. Mm. You know, we may have actually made it on to the World Cup from there. And then another thing about the 66 World Cup that's kind of curious is that a lot of nations didn't bother. So England go on all the time about winning this World Cup, but they weren't really up against much, you know, because 31 African nations boycotted the entire thing, the qualification process. They were unhappy about a number of things. There was a qualifying system they didn't regard as fair uh, and the elephant in the room was apartheid South Africa which was allowed back into FIFA in 1963 so there was an awful lot going on there was an awful lot of headlines being written about the 1966 World Cup and sadly for FIFA most of the headlines were about things that happened off the pitch and not on it Like like what for instance? The absence of an entire continent was incredibly noticeable and it made it easier I think for, for countries to make it there and there was a political turmoil in other parts of the world as well I mean Ireland's qualification group included Syria and the more things change, the more they stay the same because Syria dropped out of the qualification group because of political turmoil in the region. Mm. So an awful lot has changed in 50 odd years and in some ways an awful lot hasn't changed. And people believed, I mean, people believe this week and tonight that there might be a new name on the trophy if Croatia go on and do it. In 1966, people began to dream, God, it might be North Korea. I mean, this totally new pariah state on the world stage. Yeah. They make it in for the first time ever. Uh, they're a relatively new country. They beat Italy 1-0, which is one of the great football upsets of history and even made it to the quarterfinals, shocking everyone along the way. But their very presence in the tournament horrified people. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, surely there was an element of panic, you know, for other <laughs> countries and just they're very, as you mentioned, North Korea's very presence there. Like. It was a diplomatic nightmare for the British because, I mean, the British state didn't technically recognise the Democratic Republic of Korea, as it was known. Uh, at the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, to give it its proper title, uh, was born in 1948 with the division of Korea. Of course, that led to the very vicious Korean War. At least 1.5 million civilians died in that war. Uh, and, you know, in its infancy, North Korea was a pariah on the world stage. But it was very, very different from the North Korea we know today. I mean, North okay. Korea today is basically a country that's built around this bizarre, they call it the Juice theory, this theory of self-reliance, this cult of personality. You can only describe it as a cult <laughs> of personality personality around the Kim dynasty. It's almost quasi-religious. Anyone I know that's been to North Korea says it's, it's like this 
like there's a religion around the Kim family that's totally bizarre. But the North Korea of the 1950s and 60s was very, very different because the world was very different. Yeah. You know, they had the Soviet Union. It was really the, the, the country was driven by this belief in kind of Soviet Union state socialism. They had China as well, a socialist China. So it's, it's not the hermit kingdom that we know today. But it's still a socialist state on the world stage and it's not exactly very welcome. And like, just in, in terms of, I suppose, the level of worry or the level of panic that would have existed, like, you know, how what were they contemplating in terms <laughs> of... The foreign office, the British Foreign Office have, have a great archive and in fairness to them, they put everything up uh, and the, the Foreign Office memos were only declassified in, in recent times, but they sum it all up. I mean, this is coming from the, the desk of a bureaucrat in London. He says, the simplest way to solve the problem might be to refuse visas to the North Korean team. But if we do, <laughs> the consequences could be very serious. Apparently, FIFA has made it plain to us that if any team has won its way through to the finals, if they are denied visas, then the finals will take place elsewhere. This would be a disaster for the Football Association. Mm. You can imagine what the papers would make of it. We'd be accused of dragging politics into sport, sabotaging British interests and so on. And there was an awful lot of Politics. There still is an awful lot of politics yeah. in sport. But in the 1960s, there was a lot of politics going on around things like how do you deal with apartheid South Africa? You know, so the last thing, the last thing the footballing authorities needed was the question, how do you deal with the socialist state of North Korea? And if you make it to the World Cup, there's certain things you're entitled to. You know, your anthem will be played before your games. Yeah. Your flag will be flown. Your representatives will be, in, will be in the crowd. So the British Foreign Office is between a rock and a hard place here. And they said that we prefer as few manifestations as possible of North Korean nationality, but because we must avoid any implication that we have recognised North Korea and because anything that the North Koreans are allowed to do in Britain will be used as a precedent in the future for a much more tricky case with the East Germans. So even obviously contemplating refusing visas naturally to supporters would have meant, sure, mm. like without the support. And it, it would have been truly shameful had it happened. I mean, imagine a team being denied visas uh, to compete on an international stage. And FIFA, to their credit, the world's footballing authority, I mean, they stood by and they said, we will not allow you to do this, the Football Association. They made it clear to the British state as well that North Korea had earned their place in the tournament and they were to be treated like any other competing nation. So when they arrive, of course, and they get off the plane, there's massive interest in them. I mean, yeah, they fly into London. Because they've been talked about, obviously, and ah, the whole hype that goes ah, with yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, and, and many Englishmen had fought in the Korean War and people were, didn't really know what was happening in that part of the world. Uh, and they, they, they arrive in Middlesbrough and they become these local sensations. And the Times newspaper have this great line. They say, rarely have supporters taken a team to their hearts as the football followers of Middlesbrough have taken to these <laughs> whimsical Orientals. And what, what, like, what kind of a place, like Middlesbrough, like just... just what was it about what, Middlesbrough? Yeah. You know, Middlesbrough, was Middlesbrough? A, it was a working class town, you know, okay, and, right. and they got very into the DPRK players for a couple of reasons. They were having a bad time as far as football is concerned. Borough, Middlesbrough had a relegation season. Uh, so here you had this plucky underdog that just arrived in your town. And I think one of the things was they're wearing the same colours, you know, Borough okay. play in red and white. So there's identity. The North Koreans wear red and white. And they played with this beautiful, heartfelt passion. The North Koreans didn't think they were the best footballers in the world. They never claimed that they were. But they played with this very heartfelt passion. And, you know, people in Middlesbrough hadn't seen much heartfelt passion from their own team mm. that year who went down without much of a fight. So I think there was just something about these these plucky North Koreans that appealed to Middlesbrough. And like, in terms of the, the support that they got elsewhere, was it just specifically from Middlesbrough? Pretty much. Or? I mean, you, you hear, you hear uh, reports of the kind of the heavy the heavy English accents chanting Korea, Korea. I mean, they weren't, they weren't exactly, it wasn't like Jack Charlton's Green Army, you know, there weren't hordes of North Koreans travelling around the world to watch the football team. So it was really local people that took them into their hearts and they took Middlesbrough chants and adopted them to be about the North Koreans. Now, tell us, what about Italy? Because they were obviously 
like a huge world powerhouse oh, in all yeah. of this and you're talking about support so even and at it, that level of it support, didn't like, begin very well for the North Koreans I mean they lost their first game 3-0 uh, to the Soviet Union and there wasn't much, much uh, socialist solidarity between the Soviet Union and North Korea on the football pitch anyway because the Soviet Union absolutely hammered them and they had a big significant physical advantage I mean the Korean players were very very small the Soviet lads were, were big tanks of men you know and they looked like a lost rugby team more than a soccer side <laughs> they went out and they hammered them they drew their second game with Chile but it's the final, ga- the final group game that shocked the footballing world and it remains one of the greatest ever upsets of sporting history Why? the very slick Italians have you ever seen Italian footballers there's nothing like them there's a great picture of Inter Milan uh, when they played against Athlone Town in a European qualifier and they step off the team bus you know wearing their wearing their Prada and their Gucci and everything else <laughs> into, into a mucky field uh, and when the Italians show up in, in, in Middlesbrough they look very different from the North Koreans to say the least they're celebrities they're the first celebrity footballers the Italian team 18,000 people are there and it's become the kind of Middlesbrough equivalent of the Woodstock Music Festival because every man, woman and child and dog in Middlesbrough claims they were at this match when the North Koreans go 1-0 up. So Britain had a massive Italian migrant community at the time. So there's about 3,000 Italians in the ground and they have banners that say things like Forza Italia, you know, they're, they're the real deal. They're like ultra fans uh, and they dominate the game. But then the only goal comes from the North Koreans and it's an eternal pub table quiz question. If you ever had a World Cup oh, table really? quiz, I must take note of this, this question now, will always be asked. People will be very impressed. <laughs> who was the North Korean footballer who scored against Italy? Park Du Ik. Park Du Ik. Park Du Ik. Park Du Ik. And the next right. day, one English newspaper wrote, Park Du Ik last night detonated one of the great explosions in soccer. He scored the goal that hurled the Italians out of the World Cup, that sent the non-entities of North Korea into the quarterfinals, that sent the land of the morning calm into a <laughs> Middlesbrough night of frenzy. I mean, that journalist earned his paycheck that week. Absolutely. Um, but like Next, obviously, then was the quarterfinal, and you, you, yeah. you touched on that there, so... The Italians went home humiliated. The North Koreans had their day in the sun, and I think they began to believe that they were a footballing powerhouse. Uh, But one great result does not a footballing powerhouse make. Uh, And they found themselves facing Portugal. You had some of the world's greatest players in their team. Maybe the world's greatest player, Eusebio, played for Portugal. Uh, And they took them on in Liverpool. And what's really nice about the story is that thousands of people from Middlesbrough followed them. About 5,000 people from Middlesbrough went up to Liverpool and sang their North Korean songs of the day. And they went 3-0 up North Korea against, like, Portugal and everyone went no way is this happening this can't be happening yeah. uh, and it wasn't a fairy tale ending because they lost the tie 5-3 so oh God, right. <laughs> I don't know how you go from 3-0 up the to losing people five, of Middlesbrough the more than anything of Middlesbrough but I would make the point there was no shame in that you know losing 5-3 to Portugal in 1966 there was no shame in that and when they came home they received awards including the ridiculously titled People's Athlete of the People Award <laughs> <laughs> They were the first Asian team to get out of the group stages and they scalped the mighty Italians. And back in 2002, a beautiful documentary was made about this called The Game of Their Lives and it told the story of the seven surviving members of the team. Right. And give us the name of that again. The The, the the documentary is called The Game of Their Lives. And a lot of what we hear about North Korea, I mean, I'm not going to defend North Korea. I think it's a deformed worker state. But a lot of what we hear about North Korea just isn't true. And there was an urban myth that these players, when they went home after losing 5-3, they were put into a concentration camp. I mean, that wasn't the case at all. The seven surviving members in 2002 were quite proud of what they had done and quite content to tell their story again. Yeah, absolutely. And then 2010... Yeah, isn't they, this depressing? North Korea has been in the World Cup more recently than the Republic of Ireland. Uh, they made it. Right. They made, well, it that's the, a pretty... they made it to the World Cup in 2010. It's a very sad indictment of the Football Association of Ireland, I think. We haven't done it since 2003. 
uh, in Japan and South Korea. So we're waiting a long, or 2002, uh, we're waiting a long, long time to get back onto the world stage. Uh, and when they did it in 2010, for a brief moment in time, it looked like they were going to shock the world again because they lost 2-1 to Brazil in their first game. And they played the Brazilians off the pitch. I mean, it was an absolutely stunning result. And then they were subsequently trashed by Portugal again uh, and by the footballing powerhouse that is the Ivory Coast. But I hope someday we get to play the North Koreans and I hope if we do, it happens to, in a World Cup. I have to ask, what about the people of Middlesbrough? Where did they fall into all of this in, <laughs> it's, back it's, in 2010? It's Middlesbrough fans, it's quite funny, uh, Tottenham Hotspur fans, uh, Spurs, are known as the Yids. Historically, there was a Jewish support base around Spurs and sometimes they wave Israeli flags. Sometimes you see North Korean flags even today in the Middlesbrough support. So it's still part of the folklore of Middlesbrough. Any pub in Middlesbrough has a picture of the 1966 North Korean side up on the wall. I have to ask you because obviously tonight is World Cup final night. Croatia and France and you were talking about the underdog earlier on actually at the, the outset of this but what, uh, what's your own prediction? The passion of the Croatians is absolutely incredible. There's a video doing the rounds of Croatian fans in Waterford after the semi-final victory oh, yeah. lighting flares I off saw that in the actually, centre yeah. of the town. I mean Croatian people are football mad uh, and I was behind England. I wish the English football team like the cricket team I wish, they, I wish they sang Jerusalem as their national anthem if they toned it down a little bit you know I think maybe yeah, more the... people here would get behind them. Uh, like, it, it, why do Scotland and Wales not sing God Save the Queen? You know, it could be an English team for all English people, uh, not just English unionists. But I, I think Korea winning it, I sorry, I think Croatia winning it, would be beautiful to see a new name on the trophy at last. Maybe we'll live to see North Korea's name on the trophy, who knows? Okay, who knows? Look, we'll uh, be a conversation for another day. My thanks to Donald Fallon, of course, author of the Khmer Shmi blog and the uh, book, Volume 2, which is in shops. That's it from me today, Andrea Gilligan. Kieran will be back again next week. Off the Ball is up next here in News Talk. And my thanks to the production team today Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan with Jojo Cardoza on sound Kieran always picks a song to play out with and uh, today it's my own turn and uh, looking at who was born on this day July 15th in 1962 it included Ian Curtis who died in 1980 so he would have been 62 today so plenty from the Joy Division catalogue to choose from but I leave you with this enjoy your Sunday